Well, good evening. It's good to be back uh, with you all. I hope that you guys had a uh, wonderful uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, we certainly did. We had all 11 of our grandchildren, four sons, three daughter-in-laws in our house for a week. So it is nice that we live in that big giant house that my wife and I can't find each other most of the time in it. It is 10,000 square feet, uh, the house there behind the big giant magnolia tree on the corner. But 11 grandchildren fill that sucker up in a hurry. In fact, you can't find any privacy unless you go to the bathroom, and even then you're not safe. So uh, we had a wonderful time with them. Um, I probably would be remiss if I didn't share a, a, a big praise this evening because Saturday when our youngest son, Tim, who is a pastor, teaching pastor at a church in West Palm Beach, Florida, he and his wife and their four sons headed back home. Uh, just after they had left Interstate 40 to 95 to head south all the way to West Palm Beach, uh, about two miles down the road, he had a grand mal seizure while he was driving. Uh, he left the right lane, cut across the left, hit the median, came back out into the left lane, went back in and hit the median again, and by God's incredible grace, uh, no one was hurt. Uh, the four boys are fine. His wife is fine. Uh, their van is totaled. Uh, and uh, he has no memory of it. If you know anything about epilepsy, uh, you know that uh, there will be a memory lapse. He just remembers being on, he said, I remember passing Jones Sausage Road, which I still think is one of the dumbest names for a road or anywhere, but he remembers that, and then he remembers getting stuck in the hand in the ambulance when they put an IV in, and everything in between is just completely blank. Uh, he'd had a seizure when he was 17, uh, as a high school student. He's 30 now, so he had not had one in, in 13 years. But uh, they should be getting home. Uh, so I don't think I'll be preoccupied, but they've been driving home. They, we brought him back to our house uh, after they released him from the hospital, and they stayed with us till this morning. And, uh, of course, he cannot drive. Probably won't be able to drive for at least six months, if not a year. And uh, so they hopefully will be back to West Palm Beach within the next couple of hours. But again, I just realized how gracious God was that they weren't hurt and that nobody else uh, was injured as well. So uh, it was a great week, traumatic weekend, kind of now getting things uh, put back together. So we are in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9 through chapter 22, verse 5. And what I'm going to do tonight is move through the text a little bit faster than I normally do because on your handout, both tonight and next week when we have our last study, uh, I uh, have put together 35 of the most common questions that people ask about heaven. And I thought that you would enjoy walking through them together. Certainly happy along the way to answer any questions you might have about them either this week or next week. And so I'll walk through the text a little bit more quickly than normal, and then we'll walk through these questions together and just see what are some of the things we can conclude uh, about the wonderful place called heaven. Uh, tonight, we're talking about the glory and majesty of the new Jerusalem. Uh, in our last study, in chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, the Lord gave us a glimpse through the Apostle John of the glory of eternal life. Now, in chapter 21, verse 9 through chapter 22, verse 5, we receive a magnificent vision of heaven's capital city, what the Bible calls the new Jerusalem. And as you walk through these verses, a rather extensive passage, I do think we're on good grounds in analyzing the passage around three major images. And that is one, a perfect city in verses 9 through 21. 
to a perfect temple, verses 22 through 27, and then thirdly, a perfect garden in chapter 22, verse 1 through verse 5. And as I've said a number of times in our study, we finally come to the end where we see Eden regained and more. What we lost in the garden when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3, we now get back in abundance in this new heaven, this new earth, this new Jerusalem, which is a city, a temple, and a garden. It's interesting. The Bible begins in a garden, and the Bible ends in a garden. Very interesting observation of the Bible. So, first of all, the new Jerusalem will be like a perfect city, verses 9 through 21. And let me read verse 9 through verse 14, as that will be the first section that we will examine. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, that is, the wife of the Lamb. And again, remember in our last study, I told you that uh, the New Jerusalem is both a people and a place. And you will see the fluidity of that imagery in these verses before us. So, he's told us to look for a bride, the wife of a lamb. But look at what we actually encounter. Verse 10, he carried me away in the Spirit. That's the fourth time we have heard that phrase, seen that phrase in Revelation. And he took me to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So the bride is the holy city, Jerusalem. And she was coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with twelve gates. And at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes, the sons of Israel, were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three great gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, what we're going to see is that in eternity, our Lord relates to us in a variety of wonderful ways as an evidence of His love. And so in verses 9 through 21, we see that in eternity He relates to us through the means of a perfect city. But it's a very unique city. Uh, In fact, it's a bride. It's also the Holy of Holies. In fact, as the bride, uh, she is a sacred spouse. But as the Holy of Holies, this city occupies sacred space. Now, what can we say about the New Jerusalem? Well, I just read these verses. It is a beautiful bride, the beautiful bride of the Lamb. One of the angels, again, going back to verse 9, who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues, comes and speaks to John in a command, Come. And he tells him to come that he might show him the bride that is the wife of the Lamb. And so for the fourth time, he's carried away in the Spirit. Previously, he was carried away in the Spirit in chapter 1, verse 10, in chapter 4, verse 2, and in chapter 17, verse 3. And as he is taken into this visionary state on this high mountain, he sees the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And of course, since it is coming out of heaven and it is coming from God, we're not surprised to read that it has the glory of God as well. So, what we're seeing is that the new Jerusalem is a great city, it's a holy city, 
It's a heavenly city. It's the Lamb's city. And it is a city that indeed is possessed by the very glory of our God. And so then he goes into something of a detailed description in verse 11 through verse 14. And I would say to you all, his description, hear me now, is accurate but inadequate. Accurate but inadequate. You say, why? Because human language cannot describe what we're going to see and experience for all of eternity in this place. He's giving it his best shot, but what he shares with us, I think, pales in comparison to what it is actually going to be like. So John tells us, first of all, its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Uh, My friend Scott Duvall says it is a translucent stone, perhaps opal or even a diamond, specifically associated with the light and the glory of God. He then moves on to tell us the city had a great high wall. You say, what does the high wall symbolize? Both security and also stability. So this great wall, security and stability. Furthermore, this uh, great wall is possessed by 12 gates, which are a sign, a symbol of access, since there are three uh, in each direction of the compass. Furthermore, there is no evidence at all that the gates are ever closed. Unlike an ancient city where you would close the gates, particularly at night to keep it protected and close it under siege or battle, the gates of this city are indicated as never being closed. Furthermore, at the twelve gates are twelve angels, what I call divine uh, honor guards, who protect the gates even though, verse 25 tells us, its gates will never be shut by day. Furthermore, each of the gates contains all of the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, which again is a reminder that God is faithful to His covenantal promise that He made to Abraham and his descendants in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. As I've said many times, God is not through with the Jew. God indeed keeps His covenantal promises with the people descended from Abraham. And then verse 14 further describes the wall by noting the wall has 12 foundations on which are written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so we see both Old Testament believers here represented by the 12 tribes. We see New Testament believers here represented by the 12 apostles. And I think Chuck Swindoll gets it exactly right when he says, and I quote, Thus the city will be the dwelling place of the united people of God, Old and New Testament believers whose salvation rests on the completed work of Jesus Christ. So first and foremost, this city is the beautiful bride of the Lamb. Then secondly, it is also the Holy of Holies where God is glorified. Let me read verse 15 through verse 21. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. So this angel that is talking to him has a measuring rod of gold. And he measures the city and its gates and walls. And what we discover is that the city is a perfect cube. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, or stadia, which is approximately 1,000 380 miles. That would be what uh, uh, this number of stadia would equal. And that is its length, 
That is its width. That is its height. These are equal. So again, you have this perfect cube, which, by the way, explains why in my outline I have argued that the Holy of Holies is also where God is glorified in the New Jerusalem because any first century Jew reading these words would immediately think of the dimensions of the Holy of Holies within the temple there in Jerusalem. Of course, by now, if uh, indeed Revelation was written between 81 and 96 A.D., uh, the temple has been destroyed. And yet I believe, I think they believe, that God indeed was going to rebuild the temple. And indeed, this part of the New Jerusalem has the same uh, structure, at least, as a cube that you would have found in the Holy of Holies. Verse 17. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches in length, and so 44 of them, I'll let you put together that particular number. But it would be a large number as well, but nothing like the, the stadia, all right? But then he begins to describe how magnificent is the appearance of this city. Verse 18. The wall was built of jasper. While the city was pure gold, clear as glass, the foundations of the, of the wall of the city were adorned with what? Well, every kind of jewel. And what he describes here reminds us of the breastplate of the high priest who served, of course, prior to the completion of the work of Christ and, of course, prior to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And we'll just note them. Uh, the first was a jasper. The second a sapphire. The third, agate. The fourth, an emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, crystallite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, christophaz. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amnist. And the twelve gates were, look at this, twelve pearls. You can imagine the value of that. Each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. That, by the way, is where we get the idea that when we get to heaven, we will walk on streets of gold. We pull it directly from this particular passage. Now, notice, just to be fair, though, with the text, is the word street singular or plural? It is singular. And almost certainly it is talking about the street that leads to the temple, that leads to the throne of God. Though again, I don't think we are on shaky ground to speak of streets of gold in heaven. But here we just should simply note that the text speaks of a street of gold, uh, transparent as glass in this particular vision of the great and holy city. Now, what we do know is this. This is a massive, massive city. Uh, indeed, uh, one of my friends pointed out that it is more than adequate to give lots of room, plenty of room to all of the redeemed, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament era. Do I think we're to understand it in a strictly literalistic kind of sense? No. I think what he is simply saying is this new Jerusalem is a perfect, massive, holy place. And, of course, the holy place is where we want, where we meet God. And so it is a place where we will be with God. It is a place where God will be located. It is a perfect place. It is a worshipful place. So it is not only a beautiful bride for the Lamb. It is also a holy place where we meet God and also where God is glorified. So the New Jerusalem will be like a perfect city. Number two, 
The new Jerusalem will be like a perfect temple. Look at verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city. You say, well, then your theology's messed up, brother. You can't even read the text. Well, I'm not finished. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. So there is a temple. But the temple is our Father and our Savior. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk. Now, that's an interesting concept. We'll come back to that. And the kings of the earth, well, they will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there either. So the gates are therefore never shut. Uh, They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, which, of course, we read about back in chapter 20 in particular, verse 12, and also in verse 15. So, the city imagery now flows into temple imagery, and the blessings of the Holy City Jerusalem are now described in terms of a temple city. And one that, of course, as we saw at the end of this particular chapter, is marked by undiluted perfections of deity. Now, three quick observations. First of all, it is characterized by God's presence. Look back at verse 22. I saw no temple. To John's amazement, as he looks into heaven, he doesn't see a temple in this magnificent city. Now, you might argue that this is a contradiction with what we have read earlier. After all, go back into Revelation, and I've got it in my notes, chapter 7, verse 15, chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 14, verse 15, chapter 14, verse 17, chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, chapter 16, verse 1 and verse 17, all speak about a temple. And yet the answer is provided in the next statement because this is the eternal state. This is the new Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem. This is the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. And he tells us there is a temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, they are its temple. As one man said, and I like this, symbol gives way to blessed reality. And the temple represented God's presence, but believers now have God's presence and they will have it forever and ever. So, this perfect temple is first and foremost characterized by God's presence. Secondly, it is also characterized by God's protection, verses 23 through 26. It tells us, first of all, that the temple city is permeated by the Lord's presence and glory, and therefore, because it has God's presence and it has God's glory, he says, there's no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That is, the light of the world is the one who provides and illuminates the light of this temple city. Verse 24, he tells us that by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Let me raise a question we seldom consider. Will there be government in heaven? Yes. Will there be some type of governmental structure 
in eternity? I would argue, yes. I know for sure there will be a king. Uh, His name is Jesus. And according to this particular text, the nations, the people groups of the world are in some form or another going to be organized and in some form or another be recognized. And so he tells us there that they will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Of course, they're bringing their glory to give Him glory. And so there is a sense in which I think for all of eternity, uh, there will be in the most pure, wonderful sense, a multi-ethnic, multi-cultural nature to Eternity. In other words, let me say it to you this way. Do I think even in our glorified bodies, white people will be white people? Yes. Do I think black people will be black people? Yes. Do I think brown people will be brown people? Yes. Do I think yellow people will be yellow people? Yes. And if there were polka-dotted people, polka-dotted people would be polka-dotted people in eternity because there's nothing wrong with that and everything beautiful and magnificent about that type of diversity in God's creation. Now, that raises another question that I actually have in my questions for you. Uh, What language will we speak in heaven? And I believe we will have the capacity to speak every language. And we will be able to speak every language Perfectly. Now, my Hebrew uh, Old Testament professors, of course, think we're going to speak Hebrew. And my New Testament uh, wags think we're going to speak Greek. Well, I think we'll speak Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and every other language that the earth has ever known. And we will have that incredible capacity in our glorified state. So, we do see some structure of governmental relationships. But remember, this... uh, people of the New Jerusalem are all going to be worshiping the same Lord. They're all going to be indwelt by the same Spirit and they will all indeed have the same wonderful Heavenly Father. But the gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night. What does that mean? Well, there's no darkness. There's no evil. There's no terror. Indeed, the redeemed people, all the people groups of the world will bring into it the glory and honor of the nation. So it's characterized by God's presence. It's characterized by God's protection. And finally, it's also characterized by God's purity. Just verse 27, nothing. Not a single unclean thing will ever enter into it, nor anyone who has done that which is detestable or that which is false. No, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be residents of this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city. So, the new Jerusalem is like a perfect city. It's like a perfect temple. And then number three, the new Jerusalem is like a perfect garden. And now we move into that particular imagery. By the way, if you're a note taker, Uh, You should write beside chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, both Genesis 1 and 2, but also go read Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12, where you also see imagery of an eschatological garden that I think that, that John was also probably drawing upon as well. Now, very quickly, four wonderful blessings are promised to us in this perfect garden-like city. Number one, we will be nourished by our God. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. Then the angel, that is the angel we met back at the beginning of this section in chapter 21, verse 9, 
showed me the river of the water of life, which will also be referenced again in chapter 22, verse 17. So he showed me the river of the water of life. Let me describe that water of life for you, John says. It is bright as crystal. And its source, well, it is flowing from the very throne of God and of the Lamb and through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, there is the tree of life. Now, some people try to uh, capture in a literalistic sense what this must look like. So if you think about it, you've got a river flowing down and evidently a giant tree over the river with uh, part of the tree's uh, foundation on one side and part of the tree's root structure system on the other side. I don't know that that's what the text is trying to communicate to us. What I do think it is trying to communicate to us is the promise of life everlasting and the promise of God's sustenance and nourishment forever and ever and ever. Remember, the Bible is written to a people that for the most part lived day by day. You were writing, uh, the Bible was written to a people where water was indeed sacred. Uh, he was writing to a people that in many cases were poverty stricken. And in this particular context, he's writing to persecuted believers that are suffering mightily for their faith in Christ. And so to be promised out there in the future that there will be a water coming from the very throne of God a water that indeed provides life. In fact, on either side of the river is the tree of life, and with it, twelve kinds of fruit. These fruits don't just pop up sporadically and seasonally, but rather it yields its fruit every single month. Furthermore, the leaves of the tree were for or are for the healing of the nations, which is just, again, a reminder of what we saw back in chapter 21 uh, and in uh, verses, uh, or chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, where he says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for, for the former things have passed away. And one of the means whereby God has removed those things is the river of the water of life and the leaves of the tree that is for the healing of the nation. So we're going to be nourished by God for all of eternity. Secondly, we will also worship our God for all of eternity. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, no cursed thing, just as he uh, delineated a moment ago at the end of chapter 21. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and, now don't miss this, His servants... We're going to serve in heaven. Yes, we are. And our service, as it ought to be down here, will be worshipful service. His servants will worship Him. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know where we get the myth that heaven will be floating on a cloud strumming a harp. I have no idea where that particular image comes from. What I do know is it is totally and absolutely false. Uh, in heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, we're going to serve. We're going to serve. We're going to work. You say, my goodness, I'm going to have to get up and have an eight to five job. Well, I don't know how time works in eternity. I haven't been there, so I don't know how that works. I do know this. It won't seem like work. 
It certainly won't be drudgery. And I'll tell you this, folks, just to be honest. If I get to go to heaven and sweep streets of gold for Jesus, that'll be just fine with me. I'll have no complaint or argument about doing it. If he wants me to be a trash man, and by the way, I when I first went to Bible college, uh, I first started off as a janitor, and then I got promoted to being a towel, towel washer in the gymnasium, and then I got to work in the kitchen, so I got to clean tables and bus tables and all of that kind of stuff. Well, I'll just tell you this. If I get to do that in heaven for Jesus, that'll be just fine with me. Just being there with Him will be enough. But what He points out here is that in heaven, we're not sitting on a cloud strumming a harp, but we are, as His servants, worshiping Him forever. But then, maybe next to chapter 21, verse 4, the most wonderful verse in the book of Revelation. Verse 4, we will see our God. They will see His face. And His name will be on their forehead. Seeing His face means we will indeed enjoy His perfect presence forever. Having His name on our foreheads is a promise of the fact that we are both protected by Him and that we also belong to Him and will indeed belong to Him forever and ever and ever. And then finally, we will also reign with our God. Verse 5, Night will be no more, as He already told us in chapter 21, verse 25. Uh, They will need no light of lamp or sun. Why? Because the Lord God will be their light. And if it's not good enough there, it gets even better. And they will reign as co-heirs with Christ. We will reign with Him forever and ever. And so you might say with me tonight, you know what? He doesn't tell me everything I'd like to know about heaven. Well, that's true. He doesn't. But He tells us more than enough to make us happy, to make us joyful, and to satisfy us. Now, with that then, take your hand out. Let me see. We're doing pretty decent. And I want to walk you through these because I have discovered again uh, in my research on the doctrine of heaven that these are among the most common questions that people want to have answered about what is eternity and what heaven is going to be like. So I'm going to walk through them quickly. If you have a question along the way, pick your hand up. I'll stop. Most likely I'm going to get to tell you I don't know, but I'll give you my best, uh, my best shot. So number one, will babies go to heaven? And that, by the way, is probably the number one question I've been asked throughout my ministry. Well, the answer is a good one, yes. Anyone who has not reached an age of moral responsibility or accountability will be the gracious recipients of God's mercy and salvation. This truth would also apply to those who, because of some mental handicap, are incapable of moral discernment of right and wrong. God's grace, uh, I believe the Bible affirms, will extend to all such persons. And if you'd like more about that, if you go to my website, there's an article that I co-authored with Al Mohler entitled, Why I Believe Children Who Die Go to Heaven. And uh, it is a lengthy article, about six or seven pages, but it gives a full biblical theological rationale for why we can with great confidence say, yes, those who die in infancy will indeed be in heaven. Now, that probably raises another question I'll answer it, I think, in just a minute. Number two, will we know each other in heaven? Yes. We will maintain our personal identity in heaven. Men will be transformed, glorified men. 
and women will be transformed, glorified women. In other words, gender is an ongoing, eternal reality. And even yesterday, by the way, if you want to hear uh, someone that is absolutely magnificent on helping us think well about lesbianism, the gay rights movement, bisexuality, transgenderism, and the whole world of gender confusion. Yesterday, Rosario Butterfield was a part of a panel discussion at Southeastern Seminary. She herself was a radical, atheistic, feminist lesbian whom God miraculously saved. She is brilliant off the scale. Uh, has a Ph.D. Uh, in uh, English from Ohio State. Is a, was a tenured professor in the University of Syracuse. Was an expert, an expert in queer theory. That was her world. And now she is married to a wonderful, very, very, very conservative Presbyterian minister. And she is a mother of three children. And uh, she pointed out yesterday that one of the great promises of the gospel is that those who have mutilated themselves in this life will be perfectly restored in the next life. So when you think of what people do with sex change operations and what that does both to the male body and the female body, the hope and promise of the gospel is that what you have done to yourself will be undone by God's great grace in eternity. So the fact matter is, one more time, men will be transformed, glorified men. Women will be transformed, glorified women. And it is even possible that we will possess our individual names in heaven. In other words, all of you will be you, and all of me will be me. Just better. Just better for all of us. So personality and individuality do exist beyond the grave. Number three, do those in heaven have any knowledge of what is happening on earth right now? Answer, the Bible is not clear. Some believe that Hebrews 12.1 and even 1 Samuel 28 and even Luke 15 teach that persons in heaven have a knowledge of what is taking place on earth. Certainly God and the angels have knowledge of what is taking place on earth. But as far as believers who are in heaven is concerned, there is no conclusive answer. We simply don't know. You put a gun to my head, I would say I doubt it, but I'm glad I don't have a gun to my head. Number four, will we be aware of loved ones who are not in heaven? And I've changed my view on this in recent years so that now I don't say no, I say I do not know. Say, why? Well, here's my brief explanation. The Bible clearly teaches in Revelation 21.4 that there will be no tears, nor sorrow, nor pain in heaven. So, there's one of two possibilities. One possibility is we will see lost people in the same way that God sees lost people. Question, will God see lost people in hell suffering? Well, yes, He will. God sees everything and knows everything. Will God be traumatized by that? No, He will not. He will see it as a perfect manifestation of His righteousness and His justice. Is He grieved by it? I'm certain that He is. 
He, he takes no pleasure in the death of the unrighteous. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet he has the capacity to view the lost in that kind of a way. So it's possible we will see them like that. It is also possible that he wipes away our memories of them. I struggle with that. I struggle with that. You say, why? Well, let me make it very personal. Charlotte has a father that unless something happened on his deathbed will spend eternity in hell. He, he died a, a premature, lost alcoholic. And there's no evidence that we have that he had a deathbed conversion, which is what he would have had to have had because he was clearly lost up until that moment. Will she then in heaven have no knowledge of a father? In other words, well, I got a mom, I got a dad, and she'll be, well, I've got a mom, but I've got a, and there's a blank. I don't know how that will work. I don't know how that will work. I do know this. She will not be weeping and grieving and hurting and being sorrowful over the death and the lostness of her father if indeed he did not receive Christ at his death. Number five. Will there be marriage in heaven? No, and I'm unhappy about that. Jesus said in Matthew 22:30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are as the angels of God in heaven. Here's the second most question I'm asked throughout my ministry uh, in terms of heaven. Will there be sex in heaven? Well, this is the most interesting question and has received various answers by theologians. For example, the Roman Catholic philosopher and theologian Peter Krepp for whom I have great admiration and respect. Uh, I think he's wrong on a number of important doctrines. But he's one of the most brilliant thinkers I've ever encountered, and I think he's a Roman Catholic who will be in heaven. He argues that there will be sex in heaven because humans are sexual beings, and they will maintain their sexual identity throughout eternity. Kind of what I said a moment ago. Men will be men, women will be women. All right? With respect, though, to the issues of sexual intercourse, he says, and I quote, I think there, and he's playful, so I'm going to read it playfully. I think there will probably be millions of more adequate ways to express love than the clumsy ecstasy of fitting two bodies together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Even the that's, that's cute. You have to admit that's that's pretty witty. Even the most satisfying earthly intercourse between spouses cannot perfectly express all their love. If the possibility of intercourse in heaven is not actualized, it is only for the same reasons earthly lovers do not eat candy during intercourse. There is something much better to do. And on that, I would completely agree with him. He then, next page, concludes by arguing, quote, this spiritual intercourse with God is the ecstasy hinted at in all earthly intercourse, both physical or spiritual. And I, again, would agree with him on that. Number seven, will Jesus be the only person of the Trinity we shall see in heaven? No. The Bible makes clear, as we have just read in Revelation 21 and 22, that we shall see God in all of His fullness. In other words, we will see that there is only one God, and yet this one God does exist as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Beyond that, I cannot tell you any more. Number eight, Will Jesus still have the scars in his hands, feet, and side in heaven? I believe the answer is yes. In fact, we will see that these are the only man-made things in heaven. Now, let me add to that. 
Some people, a scar, if you've got a scar on your body, there's no pain from it necessarily, or even sometimes people bear their scars as a, as a mark of honor. Some argue that the martyrs will maintain in some measure the marks of their martyrdom. And uh, even though they have a glorified body, the marks of their death, say, for example, they were beheaded or shot, or I, I don't know how it will all work, but some believe that those who suffered um, scarring in martyrdom will also bear those. I don't know. I do think that Jesus, even in His glorified state, will continue to bear the marks of His uh, death on our behalf. Do remember that when He appeared following His resurrection, what did He tell to Thomas? Stick your hands in, boy. In my hands, in my side. And so there was something tangible there in that resurrected body that He could engage in that kind of authentic way. Number nine, my favorite. Well, one of my favorites. Can you eat all that you want in heaven and not get fat? Yes. In heaven with a glorified body, everything will be processed perfectly and everything will be enjoyed supremely. Number 10. Will angels escort us to heaven? Well, based upon Luke 16.22, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, there is reason to believe that when a believer dies, an angel will escort him or her into the very presence of God, though, again, we cannot be dogmatic. Number 11. Now, this is very important theologically to split a hair that needs to be at least analyzed. Will we go to heaven as it eternally exists or to an intermediate state of blessedness when we die? In other words, if all of us were to drop dead tonight, what would happen? Well, the Bible teaches that we go immediately into the presence of God. But I do believe we go into the presence of God in an intermediate state that the Bible sometimes calls paradise. Therefore, when we die in this life, we are with God, though we are not in our final resting place. To say it another way, we read tonight about the New Jerusalem. Does the New Jerusalem exist yet? No, it does not. It is still yet to be created in the future following the coming again of Christ and following His millennial kingdom, and following the great white throne judgment. Okay? Number 12. Do people who commit suicide go to heaven? I'm asked that often too. Answer. If a person has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will go to heaven. Suicide is a sin, but it is not an unpardonable sin. So keep that clearly in mind. Number 13. I'm asked this a lot by children and some very sentimental adults. Will animals go to heaven? Well, the Bible is not clear as to whether or not animals go to heaven. Though, we have every reason to believe that there will be animals in the new earth, the new heaven, and the new Jerusalem. You say, why? Well, two reasons. Number one, Romans 8, uh, 19-23, which was read earlier, speaks of the whole creation groaning and waiting for its redemption. Well, I would argue that animals would certainly fall into that category. Furthermore, animals are clearly a part of God's good creation. In other words, were there animals before Genesis 3? Yes. So would we expect there to be animals, if there were animals in the good garden that was created, will there be animals in the new garden that will be created? And I think, again, the natural corollary would be, yes, they will be there. Now, will my great Dane Samantha be there? Well, I hope so. She was a wonderful dog. And we really enjoyed having her around. But will she actually be there? Well, I don't know. But I do think Great Danes will be there. 
uh, not sure about chihuahuas and certainly not sure about cats, but I do think, I'm just playing. If you're a cat lover, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. No, redeemed cats, glorified cats will be in heaven, so I won't mind. I'll actually like them up there, all right? Number 14. Why do even Christians sometimes fear death and going to heaven? Well, here's the answer. Death is unnatural. And it was never intended by God for us. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would have never died. Therefore, there is a sense in which the fear of death is understandable even for those who know they're going to be with God. Yet, the Bible is also clear that through Christ we can overcome that fear. Indeed, to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with Him. And therefore, I can tell you at least this experientially, uh, the older I get, the more I look for heaven. The older I get, the more I long for heaven. I'm not saying I want to die tonight. I love being with my wife and my kids and my grandkids and my friends. But the older I get, the more I pine in a good way for heaven. Three more and we'll stop tonight. Will we know everything in heaven? Of course not. Often people confuse heaven and deity. We will still be human in heaven and therefore finite. As a result, our knowledge will be finite. One of the joys of heaven then will be that we get to go on forever and ever learning more and more and more about the greatness and the glory of our God. And then number 16, we'll end here. And then next week we'll do 17 through 35 at the end of our study. Will we all be equal in heaven? No. Now, let's look at my explanation, and then we'll pray and be dismissed. The Bible teaches that there are both degrees of punishment in hell and degrees of reward in heaven. However, there will be no jealousy in heaven. Why? Because every vessel, every person, will be completely filled concerning its capacity. No one will have more than they are capable of holding, and no one will have less than they are capable of holding. Everyone will be satisfied perfectly with who they are and what they have. Thomas Watson, the very famous and very thoughtful Puritan, said, and I quote, Though every vessel of mercy shall be full completely in heaven, yet one may hold more than another. And, of course, that all depends upon our capacity, which is dependent upon our faithfulness and service in Christ and to Christ in this particular life. But, again, no one will be in heaven looking enviously at another person because you will be completely filled to your capacity in terms of what you have of God. And, therefore, we'll all be happy and we'll all be satisfied. So, Father, thank you so much for the promises that we have looked to look forward to in the New Jerusalem. I thank you, Lord, that it is going to be so utterly magnificent that John could hardly put it into words for us to study tonight. Uh, a, a new city, uh, a, a new garden, uh, Lord, uh, all of these, a new temple, uh, all of that and more is what we have to look forward to because we belong to you. So, Lord, thank you for loving us and saving us, and thank you for what you have promised to us in the future. No wonder at the end of this book, John would say, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we join our hearts with His in that prayer this evening, praying it and asking it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week for our last study in Revelation. Thanks, guys.